Welcome to Four Quarter Lives, a podcast exploring the profound impact of longer, healthier, and more engaged lives, not only for ourselves and our couples, but also for companies and countries. I'm Aviva Wittenberg-Cox, and on this week's Four Quarter Lives, I talk with Charlotte Japp, the founder of social enterprise Circle, and now venture capitalist and board member of the Stanford Center of Longevity. After last week's podcast looking at Gen Z, we're going to move up the age and stage ranks a bit and check in with the millennials, currently in the life stage that I refer to as Q2. I first met Charlotte Japp when she was founding an organization called Circle. Its goal was to connect people across generations in a spirit of mutual mentoring and learning. Since then, she's moved on to some of the other tasks of Q2, finding a personal partner, a profession where she can earn a living, and continue her passion for intergenerational sharing and issues. Heading into her 30s, she speaks eloquently about the key adult development stages of Q2, building strong personal and professional foundations. So today, I'm delighted to welcome Charlotte Japp. Charlotte, welcome to Four Quarter Lives. Thank you so much for having me. Now, we met a few years ago when you were launching something called Circle. So tell us a little bit about Circle, why you launched it, and where it is now. Yeah, so Circle was really born out of a personal experience that I had where I grew up very close with my two parents and we all actually migrated to the U.S. from Europe when I was two years old. And so we were a very tight-knit family. And when they went through challenges, you know, it really impacted me as well. So I saw both of them get aged out of corporate jobs around the age of 50. And I remember when it happened to my mom, I was 18. I was a high school senior And it just had such an impact on her sense of identity. And I watched her kind of go through this mourning process. Um, It was also coupled with the loss of her mom, which is another thing I've been learning about midlife, how these things kind of pile up. up. So she really struggled at that time. And I didn't understand it because I was like, my mom's been at this great company for, I think, 15 years and really climbed the ladder from being an intern all the way to an SVP. And I was thinking about my career too. And I was about to go to Georgetown. So it scared me, but I didn't know what to do with that. This was not the fairy tale you had been sold. No, (laughs) it wasn't uh, very enticing to start a foundation when I was like, does this thing have an expiration date? How do I get around that? Actually, post Georgetown, I moved back home with my parents and we became roommates, as I like to say. We were adult kind of co-living roommates. And that was really interesting as well because they were instrumental in helping me navigate this first job. And the job was at Vice Media, which is in the news a lot right now. We don't know what's going to happen, but they don't seem to be doing well. But Vice was a very young workplace where everyone was in their early, mid-20s and perhaps their managers were like early 30s. So it created generationally balanced. No, not very balanced. Yep. And so that kind of like confused me too, because I was like, my parents are very smart and capable of work, but then I'm working at an aspirational workplace and there's no one here that looks like them. And a lot of my friends at work would sort of like complain or rant and say things like, I wish I had a mentor. Where do I get one of those? 
So that was like one side of it. And then my parents were actually both transitioning into self-employment. Again, a trend that I now see is pretty pervasive in midlife. And they were suddenly a specialist in one thing, but having to do the other parts of the business, getting clients, thinking about accounting, marketing your own business. Like you're not just that person in your role anymore. You're doing everything. So I was a big team doing everything else. It's all just you. Yep. That's a it's all just you. And it's a lot of growth mindset moments where you need to learn these things. And I was there to teach them some of those things, which was a really nice two-way exchange that ended up inspiring Circle. And so Circle is a community where we can facilitate this two-way exchange across generations. It's very professionally focused, but oftentimes those connections are rooted in some kind of personal, kind of meaningful connection too. So we make those matches on a quarterly basis and we have members age 20 to 70 plus all over the world. And I still, you know, as I keep in touch with them, I still hear stories of like, oh, I just spoke to one of my matches, Ting. He's been helping me with this job transition. And they were probably introduced like two years ago. So it's been really cool. Yeah, I certainly enjoyed my interactions and meetings with a number of young folk. That was very enlightening. So how long has this been running? And what do you, after a few years of this, what did you learn about the young and about the old? I mean, it sounds like maybe this was a salutary lesson for you to learn as you started off or not? Yeah, I think the experience of seeing my parents go through a midlife career transition like that and the sort of existential crisis it created, I think made me see my own career a little differently. Honestly, it scared me about self-employment because I saw them go through the challenges of setting up a business and that very emotional highs and lows of it being kind of make it or break it. But I think it also reminded me like, this is a career for the long term and it's not going to look the same. And as I help other people make these transitions through the circle offering, I also need to think about my own transitions and my own like attention to curiosity. And it's okay if what I want to do changes every few years and all those things could actually make me a more competitive professional. So I think that was a really important piece of it. And I think I've only been reinforced in that belief as I've met all these amazing people through the Circle community who have done a myriad of different careers and jobs and are continuing to impress me. You've been looking at all these different generations, what they can learn and help each other. And now you've been invited to join the Stanford Longevity Center Advisory Board. I thought that was an interesting nomination. What are they looking for? Is it exactly that, that kind of young perspective on multiple generations? I think historically, the Stanford Center on Longevity was an older advisory council. And I was brought in with a couple other younger members. And I think we're all under 40, I would say. One of them, I think, is in his 20s. And we were brought in, I guess, yeah, to create a more generationally diverse cohort. And what's interesting about the center is that they are redefining longevity as it relates to the entire lifespan. So I think, I'm sure you've seen this too, like the conversation around aging used to be very rooted in aging post 50 or sort of when you're considered older. And it's really starting to evolve where we need to reconsider every stage of life 
for longevity. And so they've released the new map of life that does explore a lot of these little moments of change from when you're born to when you die. I think that's really amazing. And that was a really big part of why I thought Circle needed to be part of like the aging world to show that you can't just have people of one age group talk to other people in that same age group about all of their woes and problems and challenges, you actually need to have an intergenerational dialogue if you want any change to happen. Well, I find it absolutely fascinating that really you woke up to the whole issue of these 60-year career lengths by watching your parents at midlife have one of those kind of life quake shocks of what their assumption was for a long career and how it got shifted. So I'm curious now that you're moving from 20s into 30s. And we had a little bit of a talk about that's a pretty big transition too: money, adulthood, marriage, partnering on the horizon. How do you think about that now through this multi-generational lens of yours? Yeah, so interesting. I think my parents came up and into their own, I feel like during a time where there was a lot of I don't know how to even put this. Like, you know, I think of them in the heyday of the 80s. Like they had such a good time of youth where they talk about going on incredible trips, you know, literally finding a Range Rover, driving it across Europe, ending up in Greece and partying and all these amazing things. And then they came right back at the end of the summer and they were living in Europe, by the way. It just sort of built a foundation where I had expectations that my 20s were going to be really carefree. And I do think we're impacted by the time that we come up of age with the politics and the economics of everything. And I grew up in America. And, you know, I think I really wanted to take advantage of all of um, the support my parents gave me and putting me into good schools. And I worked really hard in school and I was able to go to a good university. So I think my 20s had a lot of like stress because, you know, I was looking at their lifespan from the macro lens. And then I was looking at a lot of the cultural zeitgeist about being young and hustle. I was in New York and I'm still here. And a lot of like, how am I going to build my life when I feel like I'm coming from behind? You know, so I have student loans. I feel like I need to start building my foundation, but I, it's really hard to do that. And now that I'm in my 30s, I think I finally started to be able to look back and say, I was bound, building my foundation and I was staying focused and creating roots. but. 30s are so fun, like so much better than the 20s, in my opinion. And it's been really nice. Listen, I mean, it's I just think like, every decade gets better. I th- I've said that every single decade so far. And I'm in yeah. So what is it for you about the 30s that's so much better? I feel so much more comfortable in my body. I feel comfortable with my career. Like I have a solid decade of work experience to stand on and to give me confidence so I can advocate for myself. I've done the dating thing and now I'm with my partner that I live with. And I think that was a big piece of stress for all of my friends. Finding the right partner. Yeah, finding the right partner. And even the work that we've been doing as a partnership financially, like just thinking about planning for the future now that I have a teammate is very different from when I was scrambling by myself, guessing and all these taboos. And I think now things are a bit more transparent with how women talk about salaries, but it really wasn't like that even a few years ago, like when I was in my mid twenties and I just, I felt like competitive, but with myself and I didn't really understand like where this stress was coming from. Interesting. And where do you think the stress was coming from now looking back? I think... 
I set really big expectations for myself, perhaps because of growing up in New York City and being exposed to a lot very early on. And I think my parents and I, we would dream together. You know, we loved talking about oh, one day you'll buy me that Aston Martin. Like that was kind of a joke we had because my dad loved the car. And I always thought, yeah, one day I'll do that. And now I'm kind of like, oh my God, how will I ever do that? They might do it so far. You could just flip that script. Yeah, (laughs) I don't expect it, but it would be nice. Given generational legacies, but anyway. So tell me that you built Circle and then you moved recently into the venture capital world and have a role now at FF Venture Capital as head of platform. And I was very intrigued by the story you shared about how you got there, the role model that you had that you kind of watched and learned from on how to get into this industry. So share a bit that story and why did you choose this industry? Yeah, so during 2021, I was fundraising for Circle. I felt like we saw a really nice amount of growth in 2020 in the number of members that signed up. And it was time to take the step so that I would be able to work on Circle full-time and give it all the resources that it needed to grow. So I went out and pitched to venture capital investors. I am grateful for the learning process. (laughs) (laughs) Probably had like a hundred conversations and pitches. And I was able to simultaneously build a network, which I recommend for anyone who's fundraising or job hunting, like everyone that you meet in these processes are going to be somehow relevant in life, maybe later on. So it was an interesting exposure to an industry I knew nothing about. And living in New York, there actually is a venture capital community here and there's a tech community, but I had been so siloed into media because that was my background before. And I got really excited because I had all these creative jobs when I was working in media and I didn't really touch the financial or the business side and having a startup made me feel and realize I'm actually much more business-minded than I gave myself credit for. So during that process, we got rejected. We didn't raise the money I sought out to raise. And then it gave me this spark where I was like, if I were to take a full-time job and that would allow me to continue to work on Circle because I need to take care of my basic needs, right? So if I get a job, maybe I could be in venture capital where I would have the opportunity to learn new things, but I have a lot of experience that allows me to be successful in that world. And I'll bring kind of like the diversity of, skills that maybe people are lacking. And so I had a friend who is a friend from college. She's a couple years older than me and had made this very similar trajectory that I was thinking about. She was a marketer who did a lot of event planning at Artsy, a tech company in the art world. And then she co-founded her own startup and worked on that for a while and raised money for it. And then she went and joined venture capital as a head of platform at a different fund. And when I saw her make that jump, I was like, oh my God, wait, how did you do that? Like, what is that? If you can do it, maybe I can do it. And the more she said about her day-to-day projects, the more hooked I became. And I just gave it a shot. I started applying and I was actually from the get-go getting really good traction with interviews because my founder background was really appealing. But then even all the marketing work, it kind of was this perfect storm of like skills for this newish type of role. So that was really cool. And and I'm really happy where I am now. So what are you learning? What are you learning in VC? And it sounds like you really wanted to add the sort of finance hard business side 
to your portfolio skills? Is it delivering? And what are you learning? Do you now understand why you weren't able to raise money? Do you look back and say, now now I understand? Yeah, I think I do understand why we didn't raise money. I understand things, you know, I think because I didn't set out to raise money in the very beginning or even think of Circle as as a billion dollar business. I didn't make some decisions in the beginning that would have set me up for success later on. Things about building a team, building out a product. And so those weren't the huge problems. I think being in VC and being in the rooms where people are making decisions has made me realize how much of it is really your network, you know, the people you know, and how much they respect you and know that you can do good work, but also so much from the gut. You know, it's very quick. The VC I work at, we see like 150 deals a week. So those are 150 startups that are pitching. And we go through the list, we vote. And then there's like the top votes that we talk about in a meeting. And then out of those top votes, like only a few of those companies get a first call, like a one-on-one with an investor. And a lot of it is just like, is the founder solid? Do we like this industry? Do we feel we can add to it as investors because we've invested in that industry? And so many things have to align. So like it is a numbers game. It's also just like having those relationships where, you know, investors know that you can really do the job and you'll bring that. You're the jockey to bet on. Sounds like really good training for your next startup. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So I did say next time (laughs) if I ever start another startup, I'll be way better prepared. (laughs) Absolutely. The networks, the norms, the money, you'll have the language and the skills to pitch it, right? You're going to get it right this time around. As you're watching this and having pitched, you know, your hundred and some odd attempts, what mistake do you find that founders typically make in approaching VC now from where you're sitting on the other side of the desk? Yeah, I think a few things. There's definitely an approach to fundraising that to make it tightened up so that your process is organized. And it means that you're actually only pitching for like a three week span but you've already done your networking the year before that period. So you're not making asks as you're meeting people for the first time. So if I were to do it all over again, I would have spent a year doing really meaningful networking and building friendships with these investors and these funds. And then I would have like pulled all the materials together and had it all ready to go to present and given a window, which is if you don't commit by the end of this three-week period, you're not even allowed to invest. You create that urgency, that fear of missing out, which we didn't do. It just dragged on and on. And then the other piece of it, I think, is investors are actually not as smart as you think they are. And I made this mistake where I would pitch circle and make the assumption that they understood how amazing it is to connect generations from a myriad of ways of like self-reported data around like feelings of connection and how good it is for learning and career development. I didn't explain how huge the aging demographic is. You know, like this is a massive generation with also a lot of money to spend. Like things like that that are so normal to you and me. So obvious, yeah. You didn't so think you obvious. had to yep. So I didn't realize that I had to, to really like lay it out. Yep. And I just assumed every investor I spoke to knew all the data that I knew. And so I would skip over things and I thought it was a way of respecting them. But actually, they're looking at so many deals. They look at so many industries. You just have to like really pull out the most important nuggets for them to know about why your business is amazing. 
So um, a really compelling one. global narrative that is basically like a course, right? You got to go from A to Z about why this is important. Yeah. And don't be afraid to educate. It'll actually make you look smarter when you do that. Cool. Okay. Now I'm going to flip the script and move from the career side to the more personal side. At 32, we were talking about love and marriage and family, and you were sharing a little bit how kind of complicated, again, this terrain is for your friends, for your generation, for the fear of whether you pair up or not, and how much stress that creates, and all these women starting to freeze eggs and men who don't necessarily have the same conversation. What's your, what's your take now? And it sounds like you've gotten to a sort of safe little island where you're again observing <laughs> this. <laughs> I know. Oh my God. Someone once described this when I was younger. Someone described dating in your 30s as playing musical chairs and when the music stops, everyone sits down. Meaning there's almost this scary moment where people panic and whoever they're with, they just go out and marry them for the fear of being too late to missing the game, you know, to maybe not being able to have kids. And that terrified me. So I don't even know if I did anything differently because of that, but I definitely treated dating in my 20s kind of like it was a job or networking. You could say like a really serious 20 year old. I mean, like really hard at it on all sides. Yeah, I think I was. I mean, I still had a lot of fun. I always worked at really cool workplaces with fun people. Did you interview the guys you dated? Was this like a, a sort <laughs> of an interview format or selection process, recruitment process? No. And I honestly, I went for the wrong types. Like I thought I wanted an artsy, creative, sort of mysterious guy. And it was only until going to therapy that I really like straightened that out because all of those men that I went out with, most of them didn't really reciprocate the feeling or they were very difficult. I had one really serious relationship. This was in my, I think it was 20, 24 to 26. And he was in the Navy. So it felt like a very serious relationship really quickly. He would be deployed and away a lot. And so we were sort of long distance. And, you know, he would kind of like joke about getting married. And I was a little scared. I was like, oh my God, wait, 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 wait. It's a little young. I don't know. I don't know. I don't have enough experience. But yeah, I realized that I wasn't fully in love by the end and it wasn't going to be the person that I wanted to be with. But so anyway, so after that, I was really yeah, excited. What did you to learn about yourself from the men you were choosing that were inappropriate in some way? <laughs> Good question. I think I actually learned that as much as I thought of myself as a creative and artistic and carefree person, I'm actually like super, I'm a planner and I really work hard. I think that's even something I'm continuing to unravel about myself, like wanting a timeline with my partner right now. Like these things, why I can't even believe the words coming out of my mouth, but I don't know. I always thought I was so chill. I was on the radio station in college. I, I really wanted to be like in a creative environment and vice and all this stuff. But actually, like, I'm just a go-getter who likes maybe pretty things sometimes and is creative, but still has a vision and a very good work ethic. <laughs> so you developed really a totally different self-image through your 20s. You began yeah. to discover that you weren't what you aspired to be which is a pretty, yeah. pretty natural sort of 20s exercise. I'm curious, what was the difference in the conversation among you and your girlfriends and among the young men you knew? Are they also 
similarly, like freaking out and wondering about their timelines? Are they talking and thinking about this at all? What's your sense of similarities or differences? No, I mean, certainly not in our 20s. The guys, it couldn't be further from their minds thinking about weddings and babies and things. And I think there was a lot of sort of privileged assumptions that that were made. Like men would say things like, oh, I'll probably be married when I'm 30. It'll just happen. You know, like, sure, I'll maybe I'll have some kids by like 32 or like 30, 35. Like, it's just kind of uh, a very vague, abstract assumption. And I like to blame it on Sex and the City, which is one of my favorite TV shows. But we were watching Sex and the City. I mean, the last season came out when I was in seventh grade. And it's become this like iconic show that all my girlfriends and I rewatch. But I think it planted a seed where we were already resentful about men very early on and like assuming that we were all going to have challenges with dating. It kind of like when we were way too young to have any, any knowledge of what would happen, it put us on the sort of like defense or something. I don't know. And I see some girlfriends who still have an approach like that where it's like they go on dates and it's a lot of negativity. They're jaded about it. It feels truly like work. When I said work before, I meant it more like I need to build it into the schedule, kind of like going to the gym. This is like, oh, I don't even want to go on these dates, but I know that I have to. Otherwise, like my body clock will run out and all these things will happen. Or even, you know, with my boyfriend, like when we talk about the pressure or the the sort of questions that we're getting, my friends are always asking me about when we're going to get engaged. And I ask him, actually, it's not even just my friends. It's strangers I meet at a cocktail party. It's like any woman who kind of wants to have a moment of connection with me, you know, oh, you live with your boyfriend looking for the ring on my finger. Oh, yeah. oh no, you're not engaged. Okay, cool. But with him, nothing like that. There's no pressure. There's no asking questions from his boss or his colleagues or his friends. I don't know. Make me feel like we're going back to the 50s. Bloody hell. (laughs) (laughs) This is weird. I don't know. I don't mean to make it so awful. I just... No, no. It's just really uh, really interesting. How much do you think this is like a New York phenomenon versus a generational one or both piled up on top of each other? I think it's New York. I've heard that people in the Midwest or even the West Coast just get married younger. So New York is late. We're very career oriented. A lot of my girlfriends are very career minded and looking at getting their work ducks in a row before taking that step. But they want all those things to kind of happen like now. (laughs) Like I want to get to that next jump in my career. I want to get to that next jump in my relationship. I want to start being able to buy an apartment. It's like you turn 30 and like all these things become a focus. Yep. Yep. Like the checklist of adulthood. Yep. Sounds exhausting. So you're 32 now. You're not engaged, as you have said. Everybody's looking Mm -hmm. at you your finger. What do you dream of now? Expect what role models might you have for the next phase? What do you, with all you've seen in your parents, your whole work with Circle, now your own 20s, what do you expect for the next decade? And how do you think about it? So I think the next decade, I'd like it to be a little bit more of a team sport, less of the individual sport that I've been playing. And it's been really cool, even in small ways, to see when my boyfriend and I talk about the future and talk about our finances and how we want to prioritize money and what the next 10 years actually look like when it comes to building a family, where we will live, 
how many kids, where we will educate them. And I don't think my parents made had those conversations, at least not in the same way or to the same amount of detail. And it's so fun for me to have them because I think so much of my 20s were like very reactive and being put in situations and trying to figure out how to get to the next stage. And so now I feel like we have this really great situation where we can be a team and continue to make decisions that align with our goal that we share and being more on the offense rather than the defense, more proactive rather than reactive. So that excites me a lot. And I know that like when it comes to career, it's going to be a little windy. That's okay. And it's okay to not always know what I want to do next and to be happy. Like I'm feeling very good right now. I'm happy with my career. I know that there will be changes ahead at some point, but it feels really good to look at the next 10 years in a very like teamwork way. Yeah, it's interesting because both personally and professionally, you're now working within structures and teams that you haven't. And it sounds like you've gotten a little sense of control back that Mm -hmm. built a solid foundation and you can now be the planner that you are and work Mm -hmm. with somebody to now just execute on the next decade. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That feels good. I mean, there's a lot of things that are going to happen between now and then. (laughs) And it's it's probably interesting, all things I've never done before, (laughs) but maybe that's the sparkle of the 10 years, you know, having going through like, I don't know, childbirth. I don't know what that's going to be like, but it's <laughs> That'll blow your part mind. of the plan. Yeah, it blows your mind for sure. One of those amazing events. And in my parlance, you're just really starting the into Q2, right? Which is a nice, chunky 25-year stretch of building all these foundations, both professionally and then family. And you're doing that in fairly traditional sequence, right? Yeah, yeah. Though you could say, you know, we talked about the panic where, you know, maybe this all should have been taking place five years ago because now we're talking about egg freezing and sort of wanting to prevent worst case scenarios because people in New York prioritize their careers and are just later to have kids. Absolutely. There are now more children born to women over 40 than to women under 18 in the U.S. So childbirth has become a much more extensive exercise. Mm. So it's interesting. My generation was very wrapped up in not getting pregnant. Your generation is very wrapped up in getting pregnant and getting technologies to help you. Isn't it interesting how from one generation to the next, my generation was in a time of exploding birth rates and now we're in this time of dropping off birth rates and a lot of people not having children. So dramatic reversals that play out across generations. But Charlotte, it sounds like you're surfing these waves with a good deal of understanding (laughs) of what awaits and where you've been and what you want to do next. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. Well, it's good to have role models like you to remind me you can be a feminist and still want some of the more traditional things and you can kind of design the road to be what makes sense for me, I guess. Bloody hell. Absolutely. Listen, us feminists, we've been fighting forever to have it all, right? The whole deal wasn't to have to prioritize one thing and lose the other. It was to be everything you could be and get all these really important pillars of being human for both men and women, right? Young men are increasingly fathers and young women are increasingly leaders. That's what we were fighting for. Enjoy both ends of that (laughs) equation. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. 
Charlotte, thanks so much for being with me. A fascinating conversation. And we'll have to redo this every five years and compare notes. Oh my gosh, that would be so fun. (laughs) (laughs) You're on. We'll do a separate series. (laughs) I'm up for it. Let's do it. You're on. Talk soon. Thank you. For more thinking about the impact of our four quarter lives, you can read my column at Forbes and subscribe to my Elderberries newsletter on Substack. Let's design lives that aren't just longer, but better.